God bless you. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 will just kind of finish up what we started talking about last week. Well, maybe we'll finish it up. But um, see where the Lord takes us with this. We, uh, I was talking with a couple of people before the service just this morning, and, and uh, I mentioned it during the Lord's Supper and it bears mentioning again, even if it's not a direct part of like what I'm preaching here this morning, but I really do believe that day by day, I just want to encourage you with this, day by day, the most indispensable thing that you have as a Christian is that time alone with God that you spend. And... I can still remember vividly first coming to the Lord as a teenager and being told, here's a Bible, you need to read it every day, and you need to pray every day. And I wasn't really given much instruction in any of that. I just handed the book and told to pray. And, and as I came to church more often, I began to learn a little more about doing all that. But I can say to you that for certain that, that there's so much, there's so much that the Lord wants to do to, to glorify Himself and to, to accomplish the work that He continues to do through His children. And to kind of really, and I know that God is sovereign and it's not about like our effort per se, but, but I know that to really be like connected with all of that, to really experience that in its fullness, you need to be in that time every day where you're just getting alone with your Bible and you are getting alone in prayer. And you know, you don't, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not like, well, I must not be saved if I'm not doing it. Man, I mean, put all that kind of talk behind you. There's nothing to do with any of this. It's just like in a day-by-day walk with God, the most indispensable thing that you have is your time that you spend alone with Him. And what a powerful thing that that is, that the Lord invites us to do that. So I, I just want to encourage you, if you feel like you're in a rut, if you feel like it's hard to get there, it's hard to stay there, you just, you just keep going for it. You just start anew and afresh. And that's what every day is, right? I mean, we sing songs about new mercies every day, you know, and such... And that's really what every day is, is just this new opportunity to, to, to be right there before the Lord and just stay there and, 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 and just receive blessing from Him as you're before Him. And that's what it says, right? We forget the last part of that statement, but it says that um, we go in the clo- when you pray, you go in the room and you shut the door and you seek the Lord in secret. And what's the last part of that? And He will what? Reward you what? Openly. I mean, God will just openly bless your life if you're doing, if you're, you're, you're faithful about that. And, and I think the Lord, it's not, a, again, not a, a law, but I think the Lord loves 
discipline in his people in doing that. There's a discipline to it and an orderliness to it. And I think that 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 is a blessing to God. I mean, when Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him to be disciplined to present yourself a a workman to the Lord, you know, uh, who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Maybe not quoting that exactly right, but the idea is to be disciplined. The old King James says, study to show yourself approved. And the idea of study was that, that disciplined approach to being before God's word as a student of his word. So I think that honors the Lord. And if you will commit to that, and if you're apart from that or you struggle with that, just leave what's behind behind. Forget it. Forget about yesterday. Forget about yesterday's failures, yesterday's weaknesses. Just like today, just commit. I'm going to spend time in that room with the door shut, seeking the Lord in secret that he may reward me openly. And listen, test him on it. Maybe that's not the right way, but just, just go before the Lord. And do that. And watch, watch what he does in your life. Right? There's great blessing in having a regular time alone with God in his word. Be encouraged by that. I enjoyed talking with a couple of brothers and sisters about that this morning. So here we are now in Philippians chapter 2. Let me say a prayer for us. And then I'll begin to read in verse 12. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the time. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have that we can together read your word. It's already been a good and edifying time to sing praises to you and and to pray and to certainly, of course, to to remember your sacrifice. And uh, But now here we are at this time where we can together read and, and listen to the word. And I pray that this word would be encouraging, instructive, edifying for your children, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here it is, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Let me, let me start it off just reading it, and I'll give a little review of where we were last week, and then we'll, we'll take it up through, oh, at least verse 16, I think. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And that's as far as I'll read it for now. We'll say something about verses 17 and 18. Eventually, that'll probably be next week. Um, But uh, so... We spent our time really focusing on this sentence, this single sentence that is verses 12 and 13 last week. And just so you remember, all of this kind of builds on the example of the humility of Christ that we were given in the previous passage, right? Um, We were told back in verse 5 of chapter 2 
in speaking about humility, speaking of lowliness of mind, as it mentions up in verse 3, to let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it describes you know, the evidence of the humility of Christ, which was he took on the form of a man. He was obedient, obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So humble was Christ in his earthly ministry when he was here. We were talking a little bit yesterday when Brother Ron was sharing the word and and leading a discussion about some things and how he prayed the Lord did when he was on the cross and prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we were talking about the fact that like the, the, the people around, they didn't even know what it was that was in, in front of them, right? I mean, this wasn't just some guy who was a threat who they were putting to death. This was the Messiah who, as this passage describes, was God who took on the form of man so that he could make himself the sacrifice for us. There was another point in the life of Christ where after he had fed the 5,000 people, it said that they were going to take him and make him king by force, you know, because that was their understanding of Messiah. Hey, uh, they, they actually recognized, is this not the prophet, you know, referring to Deuteronomy 18, which is synonymous with the Messiah. And, and uh, Jesus, when he sensed that they were going to make him king, he wasn't like, all right, this is awesome. I, I fed 5,000 people with a couple fish and some bread, and now I'm going to be king. That is awesome, man. No, it was when Jesus sensed that they were going to make him king, he vanished. He just disappeared because he was so committed to fulfilling his father's will, which required this lowliness of mind and this humility, this great humility. And Paul, when he writes to these Christians, he says, that humility of mind, that lowliness of mind, let that mind be in you also, right? Then we get over to verse 12, And we see why it's so important that that lowliness of mind, that humility, that humility be ever-present in the life of Christians when we're told uh, by the Apostle Paul to work out your own salvation, what? With fear and trembling. And that's the key to the sentence, is the fear and trembling. We're, We're commanded there to work out our salvation, which as we said last week, It doesn't mean figure it out as you go. It doesn't mean earn your salvation. It doesn't mean work really hard so you can stay saved. It doesn't mean any of that. Once you've been saved, you're saved, and that's it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's God's grace. That's God's gift. That's God's love for you. Praise the Lord. To work it out simply means now to live your life as a saved person. Live your life here. And how should you live it? You should live it in fear and trembling. Not a fear and trembling like if I take a misstep, God's going to strike me down. or uh, I'm afraid that I might lose my salvation if I don't witness to this person over here. Or you know, It's not the idea of fear and trembling, which we saw as we looked at the usage of it in other passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It just refers to the same mind that was in Christ. He's, he's building on having that humble mind. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling means to live your life as a Christian in all humility, in all fear and trembling, all humility before the world, all humility before your brethren, all humility even before your enemies, all humility before God. Walk like that. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, when I was with you, I was in much fear and trembling. 
And he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. He wasn't saying that he was afraid of them. He was saying that he had determined to be like Jesus. He had determined, I'm going to be there. I'm just going to be very humble. I'm not going to assert myself. I'm not going to be there and try to like champion my power over you or conquer you with my intellectual arguments. When I was with you, I determined it's just going to be about Christ and the fact that he was crucified for our sins. And I'm going to stick with that simple gospel message. And I'm going to walk before you in all humility, fear and trembling. And so that's the key to that sentence. As we live out our lives as saved people, it should be lived out in all humility. Why? Because look who's working in you, which is the next part of it. Why should you live it out with fear and trembling? Because for it is God who works in you, look, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We should walk in fear and trembling We should walk in all humility because our lives as Christians are not about our own ingenuity and about our own ambition and about our own strength. Our lives as Christians are about God in us, working in us in every way to will and to do. That is, God lives in us, the Holy Spirit in us. God works in us to to implant desires. He works in us to lead us. He works in us to convict us. He works in us to will and to do, which means he supplies the strength. He supplies the direction. He supplies the wisdom. That's why we ought to walk before this world in fear and trembling and in humility because this isn't me um, like a bull in a china shop barging my way through my life. This is me living my life and working out my salvation in all humility, fear and trembling because it's God who works in me to will and to do everything. It's also why you need that time in the room with the door shut. Right? That's what Paul wrote to the Romans, right? You know, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. You want to understand what God's doing, willing and, and, and doing in you and through you. You've got to walk closely with Him so you can prove, that is, so you can understand and know and put into practice what God's will is in your life. The transforming of your mind, which happens through the study of His Word, the listening to His Word, and through much prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Right? So, so that's, that's what He's getting at here in the beginning of this, right? And then, there's sort of the mini micro-review of last week. Then you get to verse 14. And in verse 14, I think what you're seeing in verse 14 is a couple of things. You're seeing what the fear and trembling walk looks like. What does it look like for me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? That is to say, what does it look like for me to walk as a saved person in all humility with the same mind in me that Christ had in him when he was here on the earth? Well, first of all, do all things without complaining and disputing. Did you ever notice, we read the Bible and we read these miracles of Jesus. Did you ever notice that you never read of him complaining? 
even though he had people reject him, he had people, listen, he had people lie about him, he had people slander him, he had people undermine him, he was betrayed. His mission was to come and to die, yes. But in the course, especially of those last three years of his life, which are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, I mean, there is enough. I mean, the, the, when he fed those 5,000 people, the next day they show up again, and he has to say to them, what? You only followed me because of the fish and the loaves. Don't labor for food which perishes, but labor for that which never perishes for eternal. So he's constantly having to like correct people's thinking after doing miracles and clearly he, he heals a bunch of lepers and only one of them comes back to say thank you. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen that over the course of three years might make someone say enough. Never. You just never see it because Christ is He's got that mind in him, that lowliness of mind, that fear and trembling in this world. Not that Christ was afraid of anything, but he had that humility of mind as he lived and walked, and he knew the Father's will for his life. Right? Brought this up in the men's fellowship yesterday a little bit. Even at one point, his own disciples He said to them, who do men say that I am? They said, they answered. Then he said, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, you're blessed because it was revealed to you from heaven. Then immediately after that, Jesus starts to say to them, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified and Peter, when he hears that, what's, what does he say? He, he rebukes Jesus. It says he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. I mean, I mean, I mean you, you would think from like the human perspective, enough! Even, even these guys won't listen when I talk to them. My father revealed who I am. And now I'm telling them what's going to happen to me. And Peter is rebuking me? None of that. He turns around and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And this rebuke ends up being very corrective and positive and productive in Peter's life, who later becomes just one of the greatest of the apostles, right? But you never see Jesus just complain. I'm just, I I have had it, I'm fed up with this. You never see Jesus going to James and John and saying, did you hear what Peter said? Right? Where is that passage in the Bible? That's correct. Even, Even of Judas Iscariot who he knew was going to betray him, the thief, the liar, even there. You see nothing where Jesus, this guy Judas over here, let me tell you a couple little stories about him so you're careful about, there's none of it. Here's what the life, here's what the life looks like. The life 
that's being worked out with fear and trembling because God is working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That's hard. What, what can help us to go through life without complaining? Well, I suppose if we had all the money in the world, we could just get whatever we wanted and then we would never complain, right? Nope. Not true. Not true. I just, my wife and I are just watching a couple of sports documentaries about famous athletes who had it all and, and their lives were just miserable because they didn't, they, they, they had it all, but they, they were missing what they really needed. A documentary didn't say that, but, but you know, that's not the issue. Listen, I think the key to having a life that can be free of complaining is to keep your eyes open to Christ. Is to keep looking upon Him and looking upon the cross. And as you look at the cross, look at it as a mirror and look at it as to what it reveals about you. I don't deserve what Jesus did for me. Who am I to complain? And I don't, and, and I don't think the key to having a life without complaining, and I don't mean to be all psychological, but I don't, I don't think the key to having a life without complaining is beating yourself up because you're complaining. No, I think the key to having a life without complaining is to counteract it with that thing which is the high command of Christians, which is thanksgiving. To be thankful. Look at the cross. Look at Christ. Look at Jesus. And see in it your eternal in the cross and what Jesus did. See in it and in him your eternal salvation. See God's grace. See God's compassion. See God's steadfast faithfulness and love towards you. See that the things that commonly confront us as they confronted Jesus are things that are temporary. Do you think Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, just burning and raging inside that those people dared to follow him just because they wanted food? Do you think he's sitting there with a grudge and grinding away at it? Do you think Peter, uh, Jesus is just sitting there at the right hand of the Father and is just, Father, I don't know what they say to each other, the Father and the Son, but, but do you think he's saying like, can you really believe Peter said that? He tried to rebuke me. No. Listen, when we have clearly in our vision and in our hearts the eternal purposes of God, when we, as Peter, as Paul said, set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth, when we're looking at the end and we're looking above, suddenly, you know, it becomes more and more difficult to complain. As the hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of what? His glory and grace. You turn your eyes upon Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to see something about the seriousness of complaining. And I, not again, it, 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 a life free of complaining, I don't mean it to be like a legalistic thing like, thou shalt not complain, and that's it. 
because then I've just given you something else to complain about, right? Because I can't do that. No, the, the way to have a life free of complaining is to keep your mind and your eyes focused on what they ought to be on, which is Christ and thanksgiving, spiritual and eternal and future things in our lives as a Christian. But with that said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 does say something important. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Oh, and let's begin just right in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, referring to Israel in the account of the Old Testament, right? All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why? Well, first of all, all of this is presented as an example for us. So now follow this. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also did. This is heavy and serious stuff. I mean, look at this. They, 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 they fed on Christ himself. Messiah, Paul's pointing out here, Messiah was the one leading them across the sea and through the desert, but they were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of sexual immorality. They were, they were tempting God, tempting the Messiah who was leading them by their, by their, by their, uh, by their selfishness. Look what it says. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Isn't it interesting to you? Again, I'm not promoting like legalism or beating myself up because I struggle with a complaining spirit. We all battle and struggle with things. But do you see that complaining is listed on the same level as sexual immorality and idolatry? I mean, Paul lists all these things that Israel did in the desert that God was not well pleased with. Idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting God, and complaining. That, 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 that says something. I mean, there's all kinds of other things you can think of. But that says something about a complaining spirit and about the act of complaining and the offense that it is to God. And and then he goes and says, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The end of the age is upon us. Paul said that to these readers 2,000 years ago. We're 2,000 years farther advanced into history. We can certainly understand this to be relevant to us. We look and we see that God was not pleased with them when they complained, and so what? We need to stop complaining. We need to stop complaining about each other. We need to stop complaining about our circumstances. We need to stop complaining about this and that and this and that and this and that and instead turn our complaining to righteousness which is expressed in thanksgiving. 
thanksgiving to God. Be thankful. And what's the key? Get your eyes fixed on Christ. That's what the whole passage in Philippians is about. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who humbled himself. And so now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God that works in you. The whole passage is about getting your eyes on the example of Christ. What is that life that is lived in all humility, exemplified by? Don't complain. And what's the other thing? It says don't complain or dispute, right? It says, back in Philippians 2, it says do all things without complaining and disputing. And there's so much to say about disputing and obviously in the shortened time we have on Lord's Supper Sundays, not going to get too deep into all this, but, but uh, there is a place, obviously you read like Jude and you read Second Peter and, 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 and even some of the things that Paul wrote and you certainly read, obviously Galatians, right? And you, you read about legitimate defenses of the faith because there were there were doctrinal heresies that crept up even in the very first churches, even after the very first missions trip of Paul and Barnabas, there crept up what today we look back and call Judaizing, which was, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You need to be circumcised. You essentially need these Gentiles. They need to become proselytes. They need to become Jews. They need to be circumcised. They need to observe the law. It's not enough. And so the entire book of Galatians is written to like contend with that because that changes the gospel. That's why he opens it up and says, if anyone comes to you preaching anything other than we already preached to you, let him be accursed. Because the gospel is a gospel of salvation by grace through faith. There is no work to do. All the work was accomplished by Christ when he died on the cross. So there is a legitimate time, obviously, for contending for the faith. But then there are also completely illegitimate times for simply arguing and disputing. And there's a few passages of Scripture you can turn. Ah, let's just we, let's do it. Let's look at what the Bible says. Look at Romans chapter 14. Come on. Go with me. Romans chapter 14. I'll make this point and, and uh, tie it to the next couple words and then that'll be it for today. I'm not even going to make it to the end of verse 16. We're just going to go this far. That's it. So I want you to have this. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Romans 14, 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over what? Doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who doesn't. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? So there come, there come up areas in life where sometimes we dig our heels in. The example given here is the example of like dietary restrictions associated with knowing the Lord. And, and you know, you tie in like some of the Old Testament dietary restrictions and, and like maybe a, a Jewish convert is going to have a more difficult time walking away from some of the dietary restrictions prescribed in the law. Uh, maybe Gentiles in the faith are going to have like no problem with that, uh, or even it could even 
reverse. Sometimes you see Gentiles who have had no issue with this whatsoever. They get saved and suddenly they feel like they need to observe Old Testament dietary restrictions. And you, you see of Jewish people, the Apostle Paul, for example, seemed to have no problem with like letting go of like certain things that were restrictions in the law because he understood the place of the law and the place that the new covenant had in eradicating it and fulfilling it, right? And so whatever perspective it's from, what we're told is don't argue about this stuff. It's got nothing to do with the person's salvation. It's got nothing to do with the person's place before the Lord. If someone who's a Gentile gets saved and the Lord, for whatever reason, has it, allows it to be in his heart to like observe some sort of dietary restriction, listen, I'm not going to judge him, nor should he turn around and judge somebody else, etc. and so forth. That's the example that's given in the Bible. But there can be other examples of things like that as well. Even to some extent, certain points of theology which Christians have been arguing back and forth about for 2,000 years. And listen, there's a place to work through those things and study through them and make your point. But if your whole life is devoted to just arguing about uh, this view of prophecy or, or this view of soteriology or, or you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, free will versus God's sovereignty or, or look, look, or whether a person loses their salvation or not. They're important issues. They're very important and we should work through them, but we should not make our lives about disputing over things like that. Here's what we know. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and the only hope of salvation for the world is faith in Him. It is your hope of salvation and we are to love each other and to encourage each other and build each other up and help each other to go out and share that message with the world. First uh, Timothy chapter 1. Go there. Paul opens his letter. He opens his letter to Timothy with this. He makes his greeting in the beginning, his grace, mercy, and peace. Then the first thing he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. It's the first thing that he says, right? So you see a little of both here, right? You see, you see him telling Timothy, you know, you do need to like dig your heels in when it comes to the, when he refers to the doctrine there, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the doctrine of our salvation. That salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ. If people come in teaching anything else, you charge them not to teach anything else. But, verse 4, you don't get embattled and embroiled in fables, stories, endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith, because the ministry of the church is godly edification, which is in faith. And so we're not just going to sit and argue about this and that and this and that, which Christians have not reached resolutions about maybe a point here or a point there. There's a view here, a view there that people have about this or that. You talk about them, you work them through, but we're not going to fight and argue about things that stir up people fighting with each other rather than edification through faith. The precious, imperative, 
and may I say fragile ministry of the church is to make disciples. And making disciples is what? Preach the, preach the gospel and baptize the believers, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And we're supposed to teach people. We're supposed to teach them how they ought to live. We're supposed to teach people how they ought to serve. We're supposed to teach people how they ought to worship and endure hardships together and, and, and love one another. These are the things that are essential. These are the things that promote edification, building, growing up in the Lord. And when we entertain endless disputes about this point and that point among people who are trusting in Christ for their salvation, we're promoting disputes that lead to discord, they lead to grudges, they lead to people separating from each other, they lead to people fighting with each other, they lead to people complaining, they lead to all sorts, all manner of trouble and dispute. And the only one who stands there and goes like this is... Satan, because that's what Satan does, the divider of the brethren. You know, it's one of the things that God hates. Six things God hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. One of those is he who sows discord among brethren. Right? And so Paul tells Timothy right in the beginning, you do contend for the doctrine, but you don't fight over the genealogies and, the, and those endless things that, that promote nothing other than disputes and suck away from the edification, the strengthening of God's people who have a very serious mission in this life. Is it not hard enough, brothers and sisters, to, to walk and be faithful in the world? That is, it, is that not enough that now when you go to church, we're going to argue about this and that and this and that as well. Huh? The church is supposed to be a place, yes, of defending the faith, but not a place where we're at each other's throats over things that don't edify. Don't. Listen, if it doesn't edify, what place does it have? Not anything good. That's what we're supposed to do. You want to see how he put this to Titus? Shake your head, yes. And then turn to Titus chapter 3. Here's how he said it to Titus. Now, in Titus 3 verse 9, he says almost the same thing. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they're unprofitable and useless, even going so far as to say, reject a divisive man. In other words, the person who just insists on being in the middle of all of this all the time, no place. Admonish him once, admonish him twice, but what? Reject him because he's warped and he's sinning and he's self-condemned. But notice that the first word of verse 9 is what? What is it? But. Because it's being contrasted 
with what we're supposed to do instead of being in all of these endless disputes. What is it? Verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. What? That those who have believed in God should what? Let's all read it together. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. What? That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Why? What's the next sentence? These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid the other stuff. And that's Paul telling church leader Titus, who he's left in the churches of Crete to install leadership and to continue himself to lead and to teach until he was to leave and come to the Apostle Paul himself. That's telling Titus that. I want you constantly to be teaching the people things which edify them and build them up. What? That they should be what? People who are believers should be careful to maintain good works. Hey, are you a believer? Raise your hand if you're a believer. I hope it's everybody truly, sincerely in the room. Guess what? If you're here and you're a believer, you need to be very careful in your life to maintain good works. Not because you're trying to save yourself, not because you're trying to earn your place with God, not because you're trying to keep your salvation, not because you have to worry about God taking your salvation away. All that is finished. But you need to be careful to maintain good works with your life, your conduct, how you live, how you treat other people, how you talk. You need to be careful in your life to maintain good works. Why? Because they're good. Eh, see, that's why I, why I get paid the big bucks. Because I, why are good works good? Why are they called good works? Because they're good. Right? See how complex the English language is? We call them good works because they're good. And they're good and they're profitable. They're profitable, useful things. That is, the church is supposed to stay away from useless things that promote division and strife. It's not good. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It promotes the, the, the cause of the devil to divide the brethren, and it causes people to be hurt and frustrated and angry and hold grudges, and it breaks up friendships and relationships. All of this endless disputing about nothing, nothing that ever builds anybody up in anything. What does is when Titus and pastors and preachers stand up and remind them, be careful in your life how you live. Be careful in your life what you do. Be careful in your life what you're devoting yourself to. Devote yourself to good works. Not tr- We know, come on, we know that you're not saved by good works. In the beginning of this chapter, he says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. We know that. But once you've been saved, what does it say? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he has prepared beforehand for us, right? And so you are told here, be careful to maintain good works because these things are good and profitable for men. That's how the church gets built up. Teach them the truth and remind them to devote their lives to things that are good and wholesome and useful and profitable. Things that will glorify God. You think it glorifies God when brothers and sisters are sniping at each other behind their backs? Do you think it glorifies God when we are tearing away at each other like animals in the wild? 
It glorifies God, however, when we devote our things, ourselves, to things that build and edify, things that are good and profitable and useful, things that promote the gospel, things that promote people loving God, things that promote people wanting to pray, things that promote people wanting to read the word and things that promote people wanting to be witnesses, things that promote people wanting to, to reach out to others, things that promote people wanting to love one another, love one another. There's the mission. There's the mission of making disciples. And so back in Philippians, just to finish this sentence, he says... Do all things without complaining and disputing. There's an objective, right? That you may become blameless and harmless. Look, children of God without fault. Without fault does not mean that we don't at times succumb to temptation because we do. The without fault here means the absence of the complaining and disputing. Listen, In our flesh, we battle and struggle with things, but what we don't want to do is give ourselves over to things like complaining and disputing because our testimony matters, right? This is where we'll pick it up next week. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Well, you know what? This isn't applicable to us because our generation isn't really crooked and it's not really perverse. So so we 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 don't need to understand this, right? You recognize the sarcasm. You're, you're, there's still blood coursing through your veins. Right? So, 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 look, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Listen, we need to hold fast the word of life. That's the gospel. As we're holding out the gospel to this world, our lives need to be blameless and without fault in the midst of it. And so everything must be done without complaining and without disputing. That's what a life lived in fear and trembling, as was the attitude of Jesus himself when he was here, looks like. Much more to say. Stand up with me and let's close in prayer. We don't have time for the last hymn, sorry. Let's just, uh, let's just close in prayer and we're done. <clears throat> Thank you for being here today. I hope you heard some things that will encourage you to go and out from here and immediately be doers of his word and not hearers only, okay? God bless you. Thank you for being here. Sorry to keep you a couple minutes late. Brother John, would you close us with a prayer, please?